Namaste. Welcome to the Hindu Parenting Podcast. In today's episode, we will talk about something that plays a very important role in our lives, yet we don't pay any attention to it. It's like a magic key. When used well, it can open doors for us professionally and also help us deal with children and peers successfully. So, what is this magic key? It's the ability to use language, to employ precise words at the right time to communicate. As Hindus, as parents, as friends seeking to influence and persuade people to see our point of view. How many of us are taught this important skill? And who better to talk to us about precise communication than Professor Vamsi Juluri, who teaches media studies at the University of San Francisco. He's the author of many books, both fiction and non-fiction. Professor Juluri writes for many popular newspapers and magazines in the US and in India. He is widely acknowledged as a thought leader in the Hindu space, and it is in this capacity that we wish to hear from him today. Namaskaram Vamsi Garu, welcome to the podcast. Namaskaram Rekha Garu, it's a pleasure to be on Hindu Parenting. I listen to the podcast and you cover so many fascinating topics that all generations and all times will find useful. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. We are honored and delighted that you are here today. Um, my personal journey of decolonization started with the media with um, the kind of coverage uh, that was so negative, that continues to be so negative and wholly disconnected from reality on uh, India and about uh, Hindus and Hinduism in particular. Um, so I came across your writings at that time and uh, I was happy that there is something called media studies. I had not known that before and uh, that there are people like you who are speaking up for the Hindu side. Um, so let's hold that thought on explaining media studies and uh, come back to it a little while later. Mm -hmm. I'd like to start with an important task Hindu parents have of sensitizing children to the Hindu story. Uh, we have unfortunately not been very good at this. And uh, I think that some part of it is uh, definitely due to our uh, fuzzy communication skills um, we use words like right-wing, leftist, and uh, most of us do not realize that uh, mm, they come preloaded, and we are uh, missing some of the nuances there. Um, so we use these words, and um, they are probably perceived very differently by even our own children when they hear us. Um, your thoughts on this? Yes. Um... It's, I'm so glad we are starting with the nuts and bolts and the details, which is uh, uh, three or four concrete words, you know, right wing, left wing, uh, woke and uh, things like that, because this is the currency of our reputation, our existence, our future, our destiny. Uh, we use these terms freely these days. Um, but uh, what baggage they come with, what consequences they have whether they are having the persuasive effect we hope they do, all of this is something 
we are not really paying attention to and it's understandable because we are so busy in our careers um you know with uh, other things uh, that uh, you know words just seem like you know tools that we pick up here and there and use as we go along and everything is fine uh, but what we fail to understand is uh, communication um, is like building a, a huge, uh, you know, monument or a building. You know, uh, your life, every one of our uh, lives, uh, is like building a great temple, or to use a you know global example, the pyramids or the Taj Mahal or something. There is an architecture that each of us is building uh, for our reputations, for our identities. Uh, and the tools of or the building block of this architecture is the word. And um, what has happened now is on the one hand, these these buildings that we're building is not just private. It's very, very public because we're all leaving our signatures on social media. And if you're a parent today and you're on Twitter or Facebook or WhatsApp, um, your children are watching you build um you know this tower of babel if you or, or you know some some sort of a building and you know what it looks like to you uh being comforted in the habit of the words you use like right wing or left wing is very different from the image that your children are you know seeing so um i want to actually um start by invoking um a communication lesson or rather two communication lessons from two Hindu parents before we get into more details on this. Um, this is the, the Hindu parents are, of course, my mother and father, my Amma and Nanagaru. Uh, my father was a professor of zoology. He taught at Usmania University in Hyderabad for many years. And of late, I've started to really regret that I never heard him give a lecture on his subject. I have heard his students uh, tell me that he was a wonderful teacher and uh, generations of his students, uh, um, you know, remember him very fondly. And, you know, uh, some, one of the unexpected blessings of writing about Hinduism is sometimes my father's old students uh, read my articles on Hinduism or media somewhere and then they do some research and then they write to me and say, hey, I was your father's student and you have his uh, gift. And I feel very blessed when they tell me that. But I do regret I never heard my father actually stand in the classroom and give a lecture. Now, my mother, on the other hand, uh, fortunate, uh, you know, uh, her communication legacy, all the beautiful uh, monuments she built through her communication in her life and work are, you know, are preserved in time. They're going to be preserved in history. Uh, for your listeners uh, who may not be aware, my mother is the uh, famous uh, multilingual film star Jamuna, uh, who acted in hundreds of Telugu movies, Tamil, Kannada, Hindi. Um, and then in the 80s, she was also in politics. She was elected to parliament. Um, and uh, yeah, my mother passed away just earlier this year in January. Uh, so my mother and father are both, I think, exemplars of uh, not just Hindu parenting in a way, but also perhaps Hindu communication. So I just want to invoke both of them for a moment and, uh, you know, recognize that each of them probably imprinted what it means to communicate. My father as a 
teacher and my mother as a, a performer, as an actor, and uh, also as a politician, and of course, also in everyday life. So, uh, um, so to bring these two things together, uh, I think what's happening right now is, are we going to be in a position where 10 or 20 years from now, our children can look back at us and say, hey, our parents left such a wonderful legacy for us in terms of the language they used or how they spoke or how they understood the world. And uh, this is something worth living up to. And unfortunately, when you focus on some of the building blocks we are using, you know, these labels and smears like woke or left wing or right wing. Uh, I mean, I understand the critique. I fully understand the Hindu pain, the Hindu grievance, because there is so much untruth in the media today. There is so much untruth in education today in schools and colleges. Uh, we feel um, angry. We feel helpless. So we pick up these words from the Internet, which seem like they're very effective. Uh, but unfortunately, they're not working the way we think they do in space, that is, in convincing the mainstream. And even more problematically, they are not working in terms of reaching almost anybody who is under 30 today. So to summarize this point, I'll just say this. Um, you know, what you think is an insult, what you think is a fringe belief, like, oh, this is when you call somebody a cultural Marxist or you call somebody a leftist, you may think you are recognizing a fringe belief. But to almost anybody under 30 today, especially if they're going to a quote-unquote good school or good college, uh, and Hindu parents, particularly in the U.S., are very, very you know motivated to get their children into Ivy League and Harvard and Yale and Berkeley and all, what you think is a fringe belief is actually the mainstream, and it's not just the mainstream, it is a highly valued mainstream. Because to your children, when you call something, when you use liberal as a bad word, it sounds unfathomable, right? It sounds like you're against human rights, you're against equality, you're against social justice, you're against um, the environment. And it becomes very easy for organized forces to plant the idea. Uh, in children's minds that parents are in you know regressive or right wing or fascist or whatever i mean if if an adult today is himself calling himself a right wing why blame their professors later and say you know the professors uh, brainwashed my kid in college right so uh, so the key key point again here is you know i don't ever remember my father or mother using language like this um, you know they did hint at what their uh, understanding of Hinduism, even in a political sense, was. And it was very nuanced. Um, you know, they appreciated all the writing I was doing. Um, but in terms of politics, I think they were much more nuanced than many of us are today, which is good. Uh, but the bottom line here is my parents were not harsh in the way they described the world. I mean, there could be... I mean, let's face it, in any family, when people on difficult issues, sometimes you have difficult interpersonal conversations and, you know, uh, we say mean things to each other and all that. But in terms of describing the world at large, I, it's, I find it hard to uh, remember any example of my mother and father saying anything harshly, you know. Both, both of them saw the world with a lot of generosity, understanding, and, you know, from the depth of a life, well-lived. 
and a life well lived in surrender to our gods, our traditions, our elders. So uh, that is sort of the big picture on this I wanted to start with. But um, if yeah. I may just come in here, um, the, the point is also that this jargon that we use these days, mm-hmm. I don't think any of us were exposed to it when we were growing up. You know, the words themselves were not there, at least That's in it. India. That's I don't know, perhaps That's in the US they were there. But in India, actually, until I think probably the advent of social media and mm-hmm. probably this decade <laughs> is when we have heard these words like uh, right wing, left wing, uh, you know, the, the and the latest, of course, is the woke. We, I mean, I hadn't heard of the term woke before uh, two years, perhaps, you know, uh, two years back or maybe three years ma- uh, max. I wouldn't have mm-hmm. heard the word woke. So this terminology itself is so new. So wouldn't it be, a per- I mean, if, if I were to say, if your parents were in today's world with all the social media that uh, everyone has access to, um, mm-hmm. do you still think that they might not have been uh, um, influenced by this by the usage of these uh, these sort of terms i mean it's widely bandied about now you know anybody and everybody uses these terms it's just so common so uh, just wanted to uh, you know see what you think of that well i'm glad they <laughs> they my parents were not on social media and uh, no, you're absolutely right in the sense that, uh, see, you're drawing attention to the fact that words have a social history, uh, a political pedigree and a political consequence, uh, or rather a psychopolitical consequence. Um, so these words were not in play in this sense. And, and we simply were not exposed to communication on the same scale and intensity as 20, 30 years before, because of the kind of new technologies that have come. Um, I I think one big change that took place in terms of the Indian experience of communication um, is first it started in the 90s, I would say, with satellite television, you know, the whole boom that took place then. Um, And because there were just so much more content now, so many more channels, uh, people were picking up on new ideas and phrases and so on. Uh, Then with social media, naturally, it has become a lot more uh, pronounced. Uh, Now, the thing is, I think what has happened is, um, you know, this sort of leads us into a point I was going to make later, but I think it's worth maybe just spelling it out right now. And it has to do with how we learn. Okay, And uh, I think one of the big challenges we have is that, and this is an idea I picked up from S.N. Balgangadhara's book, As Others See Us, which is sort of a dialogic version of some of his, you know, more uh, scholarly works. And Balgangadhar talks about the transmission of traditions of, you know, of what culture means and what it means to live after colonization and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And a key observation he made, which I found very useful, is that um, the Indian way of learning typically is, I think, through imitation. 
And, and this was perhaps the way in most pre-modern societies too. You learn by imitating your elders, your, you know, your peers and so on. Whereas the Western way is more theory-oriented. And so think about it. Now, two, three generations ago, um, if uh, there was a sculptor, or even to this day, I was recently at the beautiful Kawai temple and, you know, the Stapatis were there from Tamil Nadu and uh, Karnataka, I think, you know, building this amazing, amazing uh, Shiva temple in the middle of the beautiful Hawaiian forests. And uh, so you think of the learning there. Now, there is a Shastra, there is all, there are these sacred texts, but, you know, you can see how from one generation to another, that skill in making the temple, in sculpting, is perhaps learned largely through imitation, you know, through practice. Um, and same with dance, same with music, um, and same with communication. You know, we learn through imitation. Now, in the Western model, on the other hand, uh, there is a tradition of teaching the theory behind everything. And uh, I think what has happened in the modern Indian experience, that is, say, the last three to four generations, you know, last 100 to 120, 150 years, is we have picked up a bit of the Western model. So we get into the theory for a few things, like maybe for science, for engineering, and so on. Although from what I remember of my two years in engineering, there also we mugged up a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> when, when it comes to communication, uh, particularly in, when it comes to politics, when it comes to sociology and the social sciences, uh, we are unfortunately uh, just doing this imitation business. And I think what has happened, particularly with social media, is we are imitating whatever our feeds show us, right? Our WhatsApp groups, our Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, Instagram, et cetera. And um, there is very little theoretical self-reflection or critique on the nature of language. Now, by contrast, almost anybody in the modern world, in the, in the Western world, frankly, is a trained communicator. It's a very deep part of their society. Um, you know, I picked up a book recently uh, in a library sale called Language Intelligence. Uh, it's a little handbook. It's a, and it says, uh, the subtitle is, um, Lessons on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga. So, uh, and... Uh, diverse. <laughs> yeah, very diverse. From Shakespeare to Lady Gaga. And, yeah. you know, this book is very fascinating. So it goes back to Aristotle and, you know, ancient Greek ideas of rhetoric. And they get to political rhetoric, you know, the you know, 80s and 90s. So one of the things that seems to have happened in the U.S. politically in terms of communication is till the 1990s or so, you know, uh, the conservatives or the right wing had a major, major advantage on communication. And starting in the 90s, uh, the other side worked on it very hard. In fact, um, you know, one of the questions we were going to, uh, you know, we've talked about on occasion is the idea of framing. And, you know, uh, uh, there's a book by Professor George Lakoff on, um, you know, on framing the idea of how to frame a conversation. So one of the things that has happened, I think, is, um, you know, the right and left have switched places in the U.S., uh, on many counts, but uh, particularly in terms of who has the communication advantage. So today, you know, I think the main challenge is um, there is a very organized 
force for creating a vocabulary, creating a frame for understanding the world. And it is coming out from forces or organizations or institutions which have been historically Hindu-phobic or heathen-phobic. And um, so that's what we are up against. And I think our old method of simply imitating, learning from our, you know, what we find from our peers or from our social media is not effective anymore. We need to understand the theory behind things. Um, how much of this is also because we are uh, playing the game on somebody else's terms? I mean, the English language is new to us, considering um, we may have been educated completely in English, but the way a native English speaker thinks about the words is itself mm -hmm. so different. And many of these terms come um, loaded, right, with some connotations that we simply refuse to see or we have no idea what is going on. Um, I mean, we come from a culture where um, word is Vak Devi and also, you know, our culture has this concept of uh, Shabda Brahman. And um, so there, there's a lot of importance on sound on, on the word. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess we have kind of lost it because at some point a fracture has occurred. And, um, you know, to make the switch culturally uh, and intellectually into a totally different language is not easy. And we miss a lot of nuance. Um, is this uh, something that could, uh, you know, be affecting us as well? I, absolutely. You know, one of the strange realizations uh, I've had in the, I would say in the past few years is, um, you know, how little I knew the backstory of English. And, uh, you know, because this is something we just take for granted because, uh, you know, many of us, are post Macaulay, so we have the blessing or the curse of uh, being educated in English. And uh, for many of us, uh, modern Indians, modern Hindus, uh, English is has become the primary language of communication. And uh, now, I mean, I spoke Telugu with my mother. I spoke English with my father. Uh, at home, we speak both. But generally, I think we tend to lean more towards Telugu at home. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, uh, but, you know, the the disruption that has happened in terms of, I don't know whether it is because of, uh, you know, this rush we have towards STEM and engineering in, in, in modern Indian families or uh, what it is. But um, there is very little awareness of, you know, the indigenous or our own traditional theories of communication and uh, linguistics and philosophy and so on, or and or art for that matter. Uh, I was recently sent a copy of a book on the Natya Shastra by Professor Ramesh Rao and others, published by the Motilal Banarsidas Press, uh, and it's a beautiful book. Uh, yeah, it's called Natya Shastra: A Study on Continuity and Progress of Indian Communication Theorizing and pra Practice. Kapil Kumar Bhattacharya, Biplap Loha Chaudhary, and Ramesh Rao. Um, so there is a lot in here still, you know, there is a, I think, a re certainly a rediscovery, a revival happening in traditional theories of knowledge and like your own course uh, that you did with the children, Rekha Garu, which was brilliant, where you, ex 
you know, uh, demonstrated how theories of uh, Indian theories of rhetoric and communication uh, can be useful today. So all of that uh, is happening, but uh, I think uh, there is there is a, certainly a, a need to recognize where English comes from, where the words we use come from, and indeed where the society we live in today and take for granted and we believe is universal comes from. And I think that is where Bal Gangadhar's work and, and those of his uh, students is very, very useful because uh, what many of us grew up thinking is a, you know, the, the modern, secular, universal uh, you know, end point of world progress that we should aspire to is just secularized Christianity. So I think understanding the Western experience uh, the Western experience of, uh, you know, Christianization of uh, uh, its own colonization, in a sense, uh, by a certain story, uh, by a certain worldview, and uh, then how that worldview uh, sort of secularized itself, it had its enlightenment and so on, but then how that worldview imposed itself on the rest of us. Uh, you know, we are we are uh, starting to patch that story together. You know, we are talking about colonialism and decolonization and so on. Uh, but somewhere along the way, we we've lost sight of something very important right under our nose, right in front of our faces, and that is that you know, communication is not neutral. You know, words are not just a tool we use; these are forces which end up using us if we are not careful. So I, I think, uh, you know, uh, again, um, you know, one of the ways to get a handle on this maybe is also to start looking at colonization and decolonization in gener generational terms. You know, so that's why I think speaking about the young and to the young and for the young is very important because, uh, you know, colonialism did not stop in 1947. You know, it's just progressing more and more. On the one hand, politically, um, you know, there is, uh, you know, people talk about <laughs> uh, pushing back and India is rising and all these things, and that might be true. Um, but in terms of our ability to um, get back to our core strengths, our cultural strengths, uh, there's a lot more work that has to be done. And for that, I think an intergenerational perspective is really necessary. Um, I'd, I'd also like to point out this, um, uh, you know, when you mentioned that most of us are into STEM. Mm -hmm. um, so the Indian Hindu parents lack of interest in social sciences. Mm -hmm. I think it's hurting us a lot. We have no background about some of these uh, terms because I think the social science, I mean, the terms are used very differently by social scientists, right? Mm -hmm. um, in if when you study communication, when you when you as you have been trained in all these theories, you probably have a much deeper understanding of these words mm -hmm. and uh, when they can be used and um, when they should not be used. And I think that sort of um, you know th that sort of a realization is uh, we are most of us are not there and. Um, I think when we have no background, it's kind of hard to uh, communicate even with our children because their perception is being shaped by uh, institutions. 
um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we are speaking two different languages at one point and mm-hmm. uh, so is there um, i mean how can we get out of this uh, uh, mess can communication skills be learned can we get better at this oh that is such a great question um can communication skills be learned um so i i'll try to uh give a quick recap of uh you know how i learned about uh communication and uh, you know now basically i think the the big difference between a lay person's conversation about anything in the social sciences broadly and something that an academic is doing is that uh an academic has spent years and years studying a particular stream of literature okay there is a lot of research done in various fields of study um it could be sociology or psychology or um increasingly neuroscience for example uh anthropology politics etc and all of these are organized institutionally you know and let's face it unfortunately or fortunately i mean it's most of it is now in the west um i think uh, there is not much we have i mean uh, in terms of institutional preservation in back in india but maybe in the future it'll get better so the the literature in communication and media studies you know broadly can be understood as follows so in 1975 uh there was a landmark essay written by a scholar named uh, James Carey who proposed that you know there are if you look at the whole history of communication studies there are two broad uh views of communication that we find the more common sense popular view is what he calls the transmission view of communication so when you look at communication as a process of sending information or messages from point a to point b person a to person b that is the what he calls the transmission view so most of the time let's think about it when you t- talk about communication that's what we are talking about okay uh how do i convince my children that hinduism isn't innately evil how do i communicate uh to them that if their professor tells them that you know hinduism is uh nothing but brahmins invading you know south asia and colonizing and enslaving the um, aboriginal population how do i convey the right information i am reading all these new books now you know and um i need to transmit this information um so that is one way of thinking about communication you know you have a fact or you have some data you have some information and you want it to reach a certain target and uh, now increasingly perhaps parents are finding that uh, you know it's not really working so maybe it's not just c- transmitting the facts but also understanding the complexity of how we communicate that's also important and you know there are there are uh, books you know which uh, you know teach people persuasion and rhetoric and all these things uh, but i want to stay on uh, carry's article because carry says uh this particular view of communication as transmission is uh while being the common sense view and the dominant view is really all about uh controlling 
objects and people over space. And it is not the only way of thinking about communication. Okay, So he says this particular way of thinking about communication became commonplace during the Industrial Revolution, uh, like the 1850s to 1890s, early 1900s, and so on, uh, when society expect you know the industrial forces of production you know um, pretty much took over the whole planet and everything was about communication was reimagined really as being able to send messages very quickly to vast populations the invention of the telegraph the printing press and um, you know radio later television and now the internet and so on the whole emphasis is on networks it's on control it's on of course compliance so to give us an example of a society in which the transmission view dominates, um, you know, think about what's going on with all the, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter and uh, truth telling uh, things that come up. You know, you use certain keywords and you get demonetized or you get blocked. So everything is about communication as a form of control. So that's the transmission view. And most of the time when we say, how do we improve our communication skills? You know, that's usually that's what we're talking about. But Gary tells us that there was an older view of communication, which he calls the ritual view. Now, the ritual view of communication tries to understand communication as a process, as an experience, really. And uh, so he talks about how um, when and he gives the example of, I guess, uh, the church, when he says, when people go to church and sing some song, um, you know, it, they're not really singing that song li literally only to transmit a message, you know, to God. They're also singing it to feel that, ex have that experience. So uh, he's trying to say that a lot of communication takes place not with the intent or goal of con of transmitting data or controlling information, but simply to um, for us to enjoy a qualitative experience of being in communication, you know, with each other. Now, Carrie says both these views have come out of religion or the Western experience of religion. Uh, he says that the transmission view really, you know, after secularization uh, takes the form of, you know, human rights and the United Nation and, um, what today you might call the, you know, the one might call the woke, woke agenda. Uh, but really, he says it does go back to the Christian idea of spreading the word, you know, of uh, expanding a particular message or worldview, um, you know, all across space, across all populations and so on. The ritual view, he says, is more about preservation of relationships in time. Um, so, uh, I, I, that is just one theoretical perspective I wanted to share on how do we uh, improve communication skills uh, by recognizing that there is a literature in communication studies and one good meta um, uh, article or summary of this literature is James Carey's uh, two views of communication, you know, the transmission view and the ritual view. And what applying that to, I think, to the Hindu uh, context um, I, uh, this is where all of this has been leading me more and more, is to uh, start seeing Hinduism less as a vast organization or a collective in space, um, but more as micro-traditions which are trying to exist in time. Okay? And uh, 
I think uh, that is really the fundamental insight. Any communication that we try to have um, needs to build on that uh, we need to start looking at our own lives more and more in terms of time, in terms of intergenerational relationships. Um, and that's why I kind of started with my own parents, because um, uh, the more we talk, try to fight this battle of rhetoric and propaganda, um, as if, uh, you know, our past didn't exist, and as if our future is only going to be what we try to control it, uh, it's not going to work. So uh, I think that's one way of cultivating a ritual approach to communication, as Carrie might uh, call it. Um, start thinking more and more about the experience of communication uh, across generations. Uh, what are the best memories you can take of your childhood with your parents, say, 20 or 30 years ago? What are the memories they shared with you of their childhood, you know, six, seven decades ago? And how best can you convey that uh, into the memories of your children. Okay. So we need these vertical bridges because everything in the curriculum today, if you look at this in a systematic way, and that's all I do as a, as a media researcher, I tend to do textual and content analysis of almost anything I see. I go to our library, I look at what, what's in the children's section. Um, I look at social media, movies, pop culture, all these things very fairly attentively and systematically. And what I see is a complete erasure of intergenerational experiences and communications in culture today. Um, so much of it is just about peer groups being shown a reflection of themselves as if they're going to be living in this bubble of 15 to 25 year old, you know, let's change the world and have a revolution, uh, you know, fantasy their whole lives. Uh, whereas those of us who are in our 40s or 50s, um, you know, or who have become parents or even grandparents, we are already equipped by nature, by the inevitable process of aging, by by time, to say, hey, our children are going to get old too. They're going to be in their 20s and 30s and 40s before you know it. And while we have invested so much in educating them on skills and getting a job, have we invested in... Um, this experience of communication where they're going to carry these memories of, um, you know, having a childhood where they've learned about different generations together. Are they, are they prepared for what life is going to be like when they're 40 or 50? Uh, and not just in terms of, you know, careers, but in terms of having a fulfilling life. And this is where I think, you know, this idea of uh, propaganda and recognizing the impact of propaganda is extremely important because qualitatively speaking, uh, if you look at something called a generation gap, I know people say, oh, there's always been a generation gap. Even the ancient Greeks were complaining about their youth. Uh, that may be the case, but the gap that has been created, the you know, the abyss that has been created by the nature of technology, by the nature of sociological change between, say, somebody who's a parent and a child today in, 20, in the 2020s, is quite different from, say, somebody who was a parent and child in the 1920s or, let's say, in the 1820s. Uh, the amount of change between two generations is just much, much bigger now for the last four or five generations. And I think um, so that is the sort of sociological change we have to recognize. And that is the richness of communication. And you know, also we have to practice seeing, you know, go beyond transmission, go beyond just data and facts to looking at the quality of our interactions and conversations with each other.
Hope so that made sense. I have something here. Um, so actually, I mean, going back to your thing on Carrie's um, uh, theories. Mm -hmm. So if you see what's playing out right now, it's probably mm -hmm. a tussle between the ritualistic and the, um, what did you call the other one? Uh, the, transmission. The, the transmission thing, which is the more uh, Christian, uh, it, it, it has its roots in that uh, proselytizing uh, uh, ways of uh, Western religions, right? So um, in India, what's playing out, isn't it a conflict between or, or a tussle between the two? Because uh, the parent generation currently uh, grappling with their kids who are on social media, uh, the parent generation is more, I would say, probably it has erased even, even post-independence, I think. But still, I think the parents' generation, 40s, 50s today, still have a ritualistic, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of core. Um, but their kids are being bombarded with the other form, you know. So don't you think that this is a, a tussle that's playing out in the Indian space and how we navigate this would be very important. Yeah, well said. I mean, in a sense, um, I think Carrie's article is very relevant because, again, if you apply it to whatever it is that we call Hinduism, um, you know, Hinduism is not a, a transmission-oriented uh, culture in the sense that, uh, you know, we are not set up to uh, expand one doctrine or one book or exactly. one uh, ritual across space. Uh, but we are uh, habitually accustomed to preserving it over time. Yeah. And you know, that is where, you know, you have, uh, you know, the necessity for, uh, you know, recognizing that, uh, um, you know, it, intergenerational transmission does not just mean, quote unquote, caste, you know, and, uh, you know, it's everybody's uh, micro traditions. And, uh, you know, under the guise of uh, ensuring economic, uh, um, you know, social justice, you have a war on cultural transmission. And I, I want to give a vivid example of this, uh, you know, so that, uh, you know, parents um, and children can recognize what's at stake. You know, I wrote an article recently in the print about the controversy uh, in Tamil Nadu when the son and grandson of I guess the ruling dynasty there, uh, you know, made a statement saying that Sanatana Dharma is like a disease and must be eradicated. And they actually had a conference, you know, by the same name. And a lot of people defending it, saying, oh, he just meant caste and caste is, you know, abhorrent and, you know, this and that. And, you know, the whole critique of caste, let's face it, is based on the premise that there is inequality, there is inequity, there is injustice which is being inherited that is why we have reservations that is why we have this whole idea that you know we need to have you know special policies because historically some communities have been excluded from opportunities and have been exploited and so on and all these things now when you look at the situation more closely what do you see you have a somebody who has inherited enormous privilege, economic and political privilege, you know, basically attacking, uh, let's let's cut to the chase here, basically attacking the tradition of cultural heritage and particularly the figure of the Brahmin. 
because let's face it, the entire discourse about you know caste in India is is premised on the idea that the Brahmin has you know uh, you know is the richest or the wealthiest or the most powerful person and has kept all this wealth <laughs> you know hoarded up for centuries and now you have not just one generation but three generations of very wealthy families. Um, you know, spouting very, very destructive rhetoric and enacting policies which uh, reduce, um, you know, traditional cultural practitioners like the priests, the uh, chakas and so on to poverty and so on. So I'm mentioning this because, um, you know, again, you see a breakdown in an understanding, a breakdown in an ability to just look at what is actually happening around you. So what has happened instead is instead of looking at the most obvious fact here, which is the difference between economic inheritance and cultural inheritance, um, you know, the communication is now around on this is taking place in two different silos, right? So you have uh, the parents' generation, which probably says, oh, all this, this is communism and Marxism, and this is bad, without really conveying to children that, hey, the key point here is, I mean, economic in a suffering, poverty, all of this are bad. That's true, and uh, but you know, is is destroying Hinduism, destroying temples, or um, you know, uh, attacking uh, you know traditionally poor Brahmins the way to ensure that more poor people are uplifted. You know, that's the obvious thing. Now, young people, on the other hand, of course, are now completely stuck in this worldview that. Um, the only way to get social justice is to destroy "quote unquote" Brahmanism, you know, whatever that means. Uh, while you know, you, the most privileged people, you know, who have inherited wealth, you know, a great deal of wealth, are saying the same thing. So, uh, how how do we deal with this? To answer your question, sorry, I, I hope that example connected in some way with what you asked and what I'm trying to say. But um, I, I I think, in a sense, with Hinduism, you know. The, there is no Hinduism without practice. And then in a way that, you know, well, of course, Bal Gangadhar and his students don't like the word Hinduism. They don't use it. But in a sense, I think we all know from experience that there is no real uh, theory. I mean, the theory is something that modern Hindus are now trying to come up with to uh, tell their children. You know, like, for example, in the Chinmaya Bal Vihar, there's a very popular book called Why Do We? Right? And uh, the children like it and parents find it very useful. So why do we light a lamp? Why do we keep a boat too? Why do we, you know, say namaste? So it gives a rationale for everything we do. So I think it is an attempt to offer a theory for our practices. Now, hundreds of generations, nobody really offered an explanation why. You just did it because your parents did it or your grandparents did it. Now, I think there is a bit of that, like you said, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of things we just did because our parents did. Uh, but I think what what has happened, at least say, let's say in my generation, you know, what in the US would be called Gen X, you know, people um, who had their childhoods in the 70s, teenage years in the 80s, and who are in their 40s or 50s now. Um, the In the Nehruvian generation, the Gen X generation, maybe a bit in the millennial generation, there was a kind of a change where we had fairly secularized, uh, you know, growing up years, but over the 20s or 30s, slowly through practice, we came back and we also started to ask, you know, what, 
you know, what are the reasons for these practices? And we felt satisfied. Our modern minds, I think, felt satisfied that there was some, you know, benefit or some use that uh, these rituals uh, belong to a certain worldview, a certain cosmology, and uh, we're happy doing what we do. Um, now, the question is for somebody under 20 today. Uh, I actually don't know what is going to be more effective. Is it, uh, is it more effective to give them more and more theory and hope that that applies to them um, and they will they will preserve Hinduism and they'll go back to rituals because of that, or will they just pick up on the theory side of it, you know, um, and uh, say that you know, hey, you know, I've read I've read the Vedas dot PDF as my friend Heli Kalyan, who's a wonderful young scholar, we uh, should uh, you know uh, puts it. Uh, are people going to just get uh, misled or misguided? Uh, you know, by by you know poor translations or pop publishing, uh, you know mythologies and so on, uh, or or you know are they going to find new creative, meaningful, and also traditionally anchored um, understandings as they go along? So uh, my my quick answer to this basically is I think uh, at the moment there's a lot of work being done or a lot of effort being put into explaining the theory of Hinduism. And uh, I think the practice, the experience, the ritual is, you know, uh, important. Uh, but where we do need more theory is a Hindu theory of colonialism, a Hindu theory of the West, a Hindu theory of the monotheisms, you know, and, you know, building on the work that was done by, say, Ram Swaroop and Sita Ram Goel uh, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, really trying to explain um, a, th a Hindu theory of society, and I think it is new. We I feel like we didn't really. Our ancestors did not maybe put in that much effort into making theories of society, or maybe we did for our own sake to uh, <laughs> make to help us live through our own conditions. Uh, but a theory about the West, a theory about colonialism, um, you know, all of these I think are fairly new intellectual challenges for that, and. Um, you know, we're, I think, just starting the process. Perhaps Sorry, we are thousand years, and I was saying, <laughs> perhaps we are thousand years, uh, we have thousand years to catch up. I think we've not done, uh, you know, the uh, the theory of society from the time I think we started to get invaded. Somehow we just lost <laughs> that ability to, you know, uh, check on what their premises are. And it's led us to this perhaps yeah one, some one... of them also becomes clear what uh, vamsi Gariv has been uh, saying right um, about uh, the emphasis on ritual practice in our society uh, versus this new need to come up with theories um, and so this this is something we are still uh, i think learning to navigate yeah that's true Indeed. yeah yeah I, I think, I mean, at the moment, what we have is a bit of an imbalance where we're trying to do a lot of theorizing about our own self, uh, theorizing about our rituals and traditions and so on. And that's hit and miss because, let's face it, again, you know, we're in the age of social media. There's a gigantic glut of information and it's hard to be discerning. Um, and the only way to be discerning is to, I think, um, acquire some pro propaganda detection skills and just be aware 
of how widespread propaganda is and how easy it is to plant disinformation and misleading theories but we are very much uh, you know following the rituals of uh, the modern world so we don't uh, theorize um the modern world as much as we theorize our own selves uh, so i think if we made an active effort to kind of um you know do things the other way you know maybe do do rituals a little our own rituals a little more even if we don't understand them with an open mind because let's face it at the end of the day most of the time when we do pujas we feel good um i think that's the beauty of hinduism true, that if you do satyanarayan vratnam or ganesha puja even if you sat for a long time it's beautiful you're surrounded by flowers and leaves you're chanting beautiful sounds uh, in your mantras and you know there's nothing unpleasant here you know and at the end of it we have very delicious food to eat um so uh, you know doing all these things experientially and doing it together as a family obviously these are beautiful things now in terms of theorizing um i i think oh, i have to mention this example because uh, you know a, a friend of mine recently told me an example of a wedding he had been to a sort of a culture shock wedding um and you know where he said and i i mean, i've heard stories like this from at least two or three people uh it was sort of a hindu wedding but he says it was sort of so um you know <laughs> um what's the word repackaged where you know the moment you went in everything became you know the rit- most of the rituals were you know uh, sort of put aside and constantly there was this uh, parents and grandparents saying oh this why why are we not doing this this is important and the bride and groom saying no 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 this uh, this is not meaningful to us we only want to do what is meaningful so you know we want to do we want equity in the ritual so if uh, oh, wow. you know okay. yeah 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 so boy ties a mangal sutram so girl will tie something else um, you know so a lot of this stuff so you know so you have some old older people you know trying to uh, sort of make the case that you know hey either just if you either follow it or if you don't want to follow it just have a social or you know civic wedding sign some papers uh why are you doing this you know you know hodgepodge uh but what my friend was saying is very interesting is at every stage whatever rituals they did keep and do they had this sort of a performance where they would suddenly turn to the audience and you know read out an explanation you know um and uh, now to some extent and I, i mean i was also at one intercultural wedding a few years ago you know uh where the boy was uh, indian telugu american and the, and the girl was uh, jewish american and uh, you know the funny thing was most of the uh, westerners in that family wore indian clothes they were enjoying all the rituals they didn't ask what does it mean they were quite happy doing it uh, mm-hmm. so I, i you know i i find it interesting where you know increasingly there is this urge to self define or explain or perform you know uh there was another wedding now another friend of mine now those three weddings uh oh my god now i have to mention a funeral too maybe but okay i'll just stick to three wedding <laughs> uh uh the third wedding was also something like this where i'm told you know they had before everything they had a like an explanation read out but the most interesting thing was the mc or dj said oh now we shall have chanting from the vedas which are an ancient uh um uh, tradition 
uh, which are not Hinduism, you know. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. So, so, what was it then? This is one of my friends, by the way. This is one of my most woke friends, quote unquote, very progressive, dear friend, but very progressive, annoyingly woke friends who was so frustrated, he called me and said, man, what is happening? Maybe you have a point. <laughs> so that's, that's you know, I think, yeah. So I think, you know, this, uh, you know, like you just said, uh, you know, this maybe we haven't been doing this for a thousand years. That's fine. But I think we need to very quickly map the last hundred years at least, you know, and we can, we can map the last hundred years, you know, if we really paid attention to, I think, this intergenerational flow, you know, what were the practices your father did, your grandfather and grandmother did? What has changed? What has not changed? What are the things they kept? What are the things they abandoned? Uh, what are the what are the reasons they abandoned some of these things? Why? Was it done under duress? Um, you know, so, you know, and also recognize the non-rational things. You know, uh, I said funeral and I was reminded of this amazing movie called Balagam. Right? This uh, Telugu yeah, yeah. movie that... <laughs> earlier yeah, this, year. I saw that. this year. I saw that. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, it would be very fascinating to watch that movie with young people, you know, not just Hamap uh, Kekon or uh, <laughs> the happy movies. And I think there was a Hindi movie also recently about a, um, a family which has had a loss. I forget the name. And it wasn't too bad. By Bollywood standards, I thought it was okay. Not as mm. powerful and raw as Balagam. Uh, but mm. briefly, in Balagam, the, the story for your listeners is um, it's set in a village in Telangana. An elder, has, the patriarch, the grandfather dies. The family members all gather. And they're going through the, you know, rituals, you know, very matter-of-factly because, you know, everyone has their own concerns, you know, inheritance, selling property, a love affair, this, that, this, that. And then suddenly they find out the crow is not eating the food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the whole movie becomes about you know, something very profound, which is the fact that it is not YOLO. You know, I think mm. uh, this YOLO belief um, is the single most crippling piece of propaganda on earth. So I'm not saying you mm. literally have to believe in reincarnation and imagine your soul jumping like a dot, etc. I don't know. You know, we need creative people to interpret that. But very simply understand the fact. And if you're if you've lost an elder, you're doing the Masikam pujas, you're doing the annual puja, the shraddhas, and you're, you know, mixing these rice balls, you're giving it to the birds or cows or to the rivers. My God, you cannot help recognizing that your existence, your body is not your own. You know, you have inherited a three-generation, at the very least, legacy. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, um, you know, whatever happens... Um, you know, I think a worthy purpose, a worthy goal is to live in a certain way that at least one more generation says, hey, you know, these names of, uh, need to be chanted, you know, for at least two or three more generations. Um, that, uh, you know, it's not just an economic legacy we have to leave for our children, but also a spiritual one. Um, so, yeah, no, Balagam is, I think, will teach more than anything I can hope to do, you know. Uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> movie. Yeah. yeah, that's the power of uh, media, right? The power exactly. of the movie uh, or the uh, something you see on television. Um, it just stays with you. And uh, I wish we had more of these kinds of content that uh, we could sit and watch together, intergenerational 
viewing would uh, really help um, rather than uh, you know just the happy wedding movies all the time uh, this this goes uh, a long way in starting these conversations with uh, kids indeed indeed yeah i think one quick practical takeaway i would suggest um you know uh, for uh, parents is you know when you uh, do watch things together you know and i think there is a disconnect because i do find a lot of our uh, hindu parents uh, are not tuned into popular culture um last year there was a show called adams family on netflix and i was doing a talk and i asked for a show of hands in the zoom room and uh, i found that uh, you know out of 25 30 hindu parents you know almost uh, all of them had not even heard of the show you know um neither now, have i no <laughs> yeah. so, i well I, mean, i mean to be fair I, i you know i am at an advantage because i'm a media professor so i'm teaching 18 to 22 year olds uh, <laughs> year after year and i'm teaching about media and pop culture so i think i tend to get a sense of what young people are enjoying a little yeah, more consuming yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but it's i think uh, you know it's a good idea to just uh, you know watch what they're doing together keep an open mind on it uh, and mm-hmm. ask questions you know learn more you know i mean i, I think one good thing is uh, you know kids do know a lot more you know particularly about technology about pop culture and so on so just learn learn more from the young you know so learn more from, just be a learner from both both sides i think that's the best thing that can happen to us i mean from our, from our own teenage years till we are 30 or 40 we are so busy learning to survive right getting a studying getting into college getting a job you know keeping ahead all that um now everything else i think works well by just learning you know both from our elders and also from our young and as we learn from them i think you know uh, you know maybe our youngsters will also learn that you you know to learn they learn to learn from us you know um so we don't have to become custodians of um hinduism or anything like that you know we don't need to tell them like do it or else um you know just just have fun together you know that's uh, yeah yeah I, th- i i think what you're saying is uh, be less of uh, um, a parent in the transmission mode only and exactly. uh, get into the ritualistic mode with them and well uh, said well maybe, said well then said. maybe you have a better chance of uh, um, having some uh, influence uh, like we want to <laughs> yeah i think ultimately you know youngsters also have to, will recognize at some point or the other that as annoying as parents can be um, you know we have their interests at heart a lot more than school yeah. or state or church or corporation you know yeah and right. and yeah. you know what i'm recognizing in my history study of the history of propaganda is you know propaganda is designed so much to break vertical ties so that there is horizontal coercion you know to create mm. uh, large armies of consumers of workers of uh, you know uh, party supporters um so what youngsters are going through you know from the time they're born is an experience of organized communication which is designed to break Ooh. their bonds with the those older than them and also those younger than them you know just the fact mm-hmm. that our classes are organized into age cohorts all of this is just 100 150 years old it was never like that mm. you know mm, yeah. so i, I think, think that's, that's what i think we are so blessed that you know 
we have such a long history of the family being the central unit uh, it's mm-hmm. been hard to break that you know and we are still sort of standing i think because of that uh, centuries and centuries of the emphasis on family and the community you know so <laughs> uh, really thank god for some structures like that otherwise we would have probably gone the same way as the west we are reaching there for sure <laughs> but uh, uh, there's also i think you know a pushback and a recognition that we are trying uh, they, uh, we are trying to be boxed into these horizontal uh, you know groupings uh, so i think there is uh, hope for us hopefully we will not succumb you know like uh, most of the west seems to have done right yeah i think you know the the family in a sense is uh, you know the uh, magic word over here um it sounds very cliched because again anybody who's uh, growing up today is probably growing up with this idea that family means oppression and patriarchy and you know casteism and all these things more and, buzzwords <laughs> more <laughs> buzzwords exactly exactly so i mean Uh, and and also let's i mean let, let's not forget the fact that there are problems that exist in families you know and children often grow up uh, seeing you know, the family as a less than a perfect institution you know uh, sure. whether it is conflict among parents or with siblings or extended family or um, so uh, you know i think uh, you know it's hard to romanticize the family but then luckily there are movies like balagam and in a different time and place i think hum aapke kon was enormously successful because it presented to that generation going through a very rapid cultural change and economic liberalization that you know hey even if it's just a movie you know look you can everyone can be happy together you know everyone can follow dharma and so on so that was one time hum aapke kon in the 90s you know i did a research audience research on it thinking that i was going to you know critique this movie and show how it's very oppressive and all that but once i saw it and once i heard people talk about it i learned from them i i wanted to say something about i you know the family not just as you know a normative idea of a family you know but simply very simply as an as an institution which preserves intergenerational uh communication and existence you know um normally in the old days it was three generations and now it, maybe it's only two uh but all the same uh i i think uh you know it's very important uh, to recognize that uh, you know there are experiences of the world um that those of us who call ourselves hindu or indian even broadly uh still have access to um intergenerational or multigenerational memories which uh, most of the world has lost okay because uh, the way i understand col- uh, colonization now is i mean not just the economic part or one country taking over the economy and society of another country but even internally you know the question of how, how was europe colonized for example um it's if you look at it in generational terms you're looking at let's say you know 20 centuries into three generations you're looking at about 60 odd generations where you have this population which has been uh left in a limbo because they have been cut off from the traditional you know transgenerational memories uh, their gods their ancestor rituals their festivals etc 
and they have been placed inside a worldview, an organization, a force, um, which seems to have only one direction, left, you know, uh, one set of directions, left or right. So they go through this one phase of revolution and the purge and uprising and so on. And then they go to the other extreme, you know, then they will go to, you know, extreme oppression and, you know, totalitarianism and authoritarianism. They keep going back and forth. And it has reached such a point now where even that one institution they had for, you know, uh, the family to exist in time, you know, to pass on some traditions and bonds, which is the church, has collapsed or is, you know, uh, rapidly weakened, at least in the U.S., so uh, what I see happening in the U.S. Uh, is, I think, a desire for people to uh, find some kind of intergenerational continuity again, whether one wants to call it the family or uh, or religion or whatever else. Uh, but they just don't have the memory or the cultural resources to, to do it as well as we could be doing, you know. And, uh, you know, this is, again, I, I don't want to get into Vishwaguru rhetoric or say that, hey, you know, we can save the world and all that. But, um, you know, the fact is that we are in a position where, uh, you know, I think we can revive a longer sense of, you know, intergenerational memory as Hindus. Um, and, uh, you know, that is something each of us could work on. And uh, so what we really have to communicate, I think, um, is our, our place in time, not just our place in space, but our place in time. Um, so, you know, to conclude, I think uh, uh, watching interesting movies like Balagam and whatever you watch or read with your children, I would say um, start talking about intergenerational representation. Okay? Um, so because let's face it, your children and maybe even you are now trained uh, to recognize intragenerational representation issues, right? So a lot of people today, if you watch a movie, immediately you're going to see patriarchy, you're going to see racism, you're going to see, um, you know, representation or misrepresentation in terms of identities, you know. Uh, sometimes even when it's not there, you know. Uh, so, for example, there was this uh, TV series called Never Have I Ever, which is about uh, Indian-American girl, you know, on Netflix, which was quite popular. And people were criticizing it, saying, "Oh, but um, you know, she's a Brahmin, and if she's praying to Brahmin gods. It's not talk. It's not showing them repenting for caste oppression." So, I mean, this is the kind of uh, ret uh, you know uh, rhetoric or conversation that has been normalized in society now. So, rather than keep fighting within the same space, which is so constricting, um, try and draw attention to. Uh, intergenerational ties. So if you're watching Balagam or, you know, Never Have I Ever, um, or this new horror movie, uh, what's it? I think it's called It Lives in Us or something. Um, there's Luckily, there's still a lot of stories in the popular culture, uh, you know, which are about intergenerational relationships, you know. Um, and I mean, even our own stories, Ramayana, Mahabharata, you know, so much of it is about uh, the relationship between parents and children and um, you know, things like that. So I think the more we experience culture and communication intergenerationally, and the more we talk about it, and the more we train ourselves to look at what's going on in time, um, you know, the better off uh, our experience of communication will be. 
yeah so i think we've covered a wide gamut of issues i think in this very uh, you know very interesting and engaging conversation that we have had and uh, seeing vamsi ji your uh, uh, your uh, hold on the media and entertainment media in particular i think we should have you back to do some uh, you know uh, some movie deconstructions for us <laughs> oh it'll uh, be a, that will be fun <laughs> yeah so we will think yes, of doing uh, something like that totally <laughs> yeah. looking forward to that and we never got to talk um, about uh, media studies um, yeah. i mean even i'm really curious about what what goes on there and we should have you back to also enlighten our uh, listeners on uh, media propaganda you know these are topics that we really need to uh, get into at length the next time wonderful uh, maybe we can ask our listeners to do a poll and suggest a movie or a novel um, you know and we'll focus on that and just talk about this in in depth you know um sure. i i don't maybe maybe pa- parents can pick a, a book that children are reading in school i don't know like 1984 or animal farm um or or a popular indian movie i don't know anything anything yeah, can, yeah that yeah. that sounds like fun yeah yeah we could do that yeah that would be nice yeah. so it will also um, get our audience also to participate you know so they choose yeah. what we'll speak about <laughs> so absolutely uh, that's good and also we can do it uh, ritualistically rather than uh, deconstruct <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> through transmission i think this should yeah. be fun and yeah that's yeah nice no that, that that's why media studies classes are popular because there is actually very little transmission i mean i i just know there's a literature and there's a history to the field i try to convey that a little bit but most of what we do is learning together you know watching a movie and teasing out you know various readings and so on that it's fun Yeah. and um, my vocabulary has been really enriched today by uh, especially these uh, you know theories of communication and it's just opened up a whole new vista and uh, thank you so much thank you it was a pleasure thank you vamsi ji so to our listeners uh, we would like to say that uh, continuing on this theme of communication uh, hindu parenting will be conducting a um, a communication workshop um but utilizing our traditional resources uh for today's communication skills uh, so we uh, we will be using the alankara shastra and the tenets of that to um help children we are particularly looking at uh, teenagers to attend this workshop and uh, we, it would help them immensely in their communication needs for today so the workshop is uh, scheduled to start from 15th october uh, running through to 24th october which will coincide with uh, the 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 shera holidays of most kids we would think so any listeners interested in participating in this workshop uh, it's uh, the information is there on uh, our uh, on our substack platform as well as on uh, all our social media so uh, we request our listeners to spread the word around and tell people to subscribe to us um, obviously uh, on our substack but also to subscribe and follow us on social media we go by the handle hindu parenting on all social media and this podcast and all podcasts are available on podcast platforms like spotify 
uh, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. So it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Vamsi ji, and we uh, we will have you back soon. And uh, thank you very much for coming. So until the next time, namaste. Bye.